Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, again, just uh, by way of review, you know that the first three chapters, the division there uh, that the Apostle Paul has, and he is customary, uh, what he does is he brings the indicative and then he brings the imperative. And as I've told you before, that the indicative is a statement of fact. It's what God declares that who we are and what he has done for us in his word. And that's what Paul does in the first three chapters. There's a few imperatives in chapter 3, but for the most part, they're all in the indicative mood. And the mood of command, the imperative, is that which we find after the indicative, and that is important. Because we don't do to become, we do because we are. God has regenerated the soul, and because He has regenerated the soul, and He has infused, as it were, new qualities into the will, and he has shed his love abroad in the heart by his Holy Spirit, we then necessarily become in increment, growing, it's a growing thing, more and more like unto Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit begins more and more flowing through us. We are a forgiving, forgiven people, and therefore we are a practicing, forgiving people. We have been loved by God in Jesus Christ, and therefore... We become a loving people. That is a result. And that's what Paul is demonstrating here. And it's important to understand that. Otherwise, you'll become a Pharisee. Thinking you need to do to be accepted by God. Your acceptance with God is always only Christ. And once you are accepted by God, declared holy and righteous by Him on account of the work of Jesus Christ, His life and His death in your place on your behalf you will then necessarily begin producing fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, but the fruit will come. And as John, we read in uh, John 15, your fruit will remain. And sometimes he begins to prune us so that we might then bear more fruit. So here we are as the people of God. And Paul then begins to speak of the unity that we have in the church. Now, Unity brings strength. Where you have division and schism, you have a weakness within the congregation. And it'll fracture and it'll end up splitting. Unity. Now how is it that we can have unity? Well, the thinking must begin corresponding with one another. The the mind must become that which thinks like the other. When you don't have people of the same mind, they can't walk together. That's the difficulty we have in this world with the unbelieving worldview. You can't walk with them because you don't believe the same things. There's a conflict, constant conflict that goes on. It's a spiritual worldview warfare. You can be kind, you can be gentle, you can be long-suffering, you can be those things, but you can't walk with them. It's a constant conflict. It's a constant contention that goes on. And so it is in the church. Until we begin more and more thinking the same things, there's going to be division. There's going to be schism in the life of the church. Now what is that that unifies us? It's the Spirit applying the Word of God to the mind. We are called, Paul says, to all think the same things. This is an edification in the life of the church. This is the unity, the growth 
in the life of the church. Dishonors and glorifies the Lord. It's no less than the body functioning in conjunction with one another. The different parts under one head working together as a body. Now where you have a part that doesn't work, it's difficult, isn't it? Where that one part doesn't work, it doesn't carry its load. And when it doesn't carry its load, it causes contention in the rest of the body. If you've ever had a sprained ankle, what happens? You next have a lot of pressure put on the other ankle because of the one that's wounded, and it can't bear the load of the whole body, but yet you're taxing it too. And so, so it is with the spiritual body of Christ. Beloved, you're not promoting unity if you are not one studying the Scriptures. Because in not studying the Scriptures, you are not then having the mind of Christ growing in you. And if you're a believer, you have the mind of Christ, but it must grow. It must mature. And that's what the Spirit does through the Word. I mean, you read the Confessions, especially the Heidelberg Catechism, and you find how ludicrous it is for us to pray certain things if we're not people of the Word. You don't even know what to pray for as you ought, if you're not in the Word. If we ask anything according to His will, which is His Word, He hears us. So Paul then accents the unity of the church. We need that. Uh, Psalm 133, how good and how uh, blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity. There's a blessedness of not having constant contention. You know, I've felt that before. It's a constant contention. Paul says in Romans 12, as much as lies within you, as much as it is possible, as much as depends upon you, be at peace with all men. I have found, I have just simply got to avoid certain individuals because I can't be at peace with them. There's turmoil and conflict that goes on. So, to have some type of semblance of peace, I just simply avoid it. Why? Because getting together, it's all fireworks. So I just avoid that. Now, Paul then moves into diversity. This is what is called in philosophical terms, the one and the many. That is always the difficulty in thinking, the one and the many. God is one God and yet three persons, the one and the many. There's not three gods, it's one God, three distinct persons. And all three persons of the Godhead are fully God. Truly God. And yet there is one God essence. The one and the many. That's what you have with the body of Christ. One body, many members. And all the members don't have the same function. We are called then to work together with the diversity that brings really together the unity, doesn't it? It's when all the members are functioning as they ought. Then you find the strength of the unity which God brings together in the body. So it's exercising your gifts. That's what Paul is getting at now when we move into this particular text this morning. And uh, notice we begin in verse 7. And Paul then starts with regards to the grace that has been given to us. He says, but to each one of us. Now just think about that for a moment. Each particular individual in the body of Christ has been engraced by God. Now there is the regeneration, there is the salvation as a whole, there is the sanctification, justification, glorification, aspects of salvation 
there is aspects of redemption. You have been graced with that, but more than that, you have been given a gift. God has gifted His people, and He's gifted His people by His grace. We're undeserving of these gifts, but God is gifted. And He's gifted so that we might serve in the body. Again, because Paul uses the physical body as a metaphor for the spiritual body, just simply go back to that. God has given us thumbs. He's given us the pinkies. He's given us the index fingers. He's given us fingers to be able to do certain functions. In the Old Testament, when kings were conquered, the thumbs and the big toes were lopped off. Why? Because you couldn't carry a sword without a thumb, and you couldn't walk very well without big toes. And if you've ever broken one of your big toes, you know what I'm talking about. So the functionality then of the body. God commands us then to use those gifts within the body for His glory and for the good of the body. Each individual part of my body has a specific function. And I do not expect my pinky to do what my thumb does. Now, once in a while, you see something that's extraordinary. You find somebody painting with their feet. Or playing a guitar. You ever seen that? Somebody playing a guitar with their toes? I I, I don't get that. But I've seen it. But I'm sure it takes years of practice to get there. Myself, I just (laughs) wouldn't play the guitar. This just ain't going to happen. But my point is that each part, each member, has a specific role to play within the body. Uh, God has gifted the human body in that way for that function. If you lost your thumb, do you know how difficult it is to pick up a quarter from the table? If you didn't have a thumb, how would your writing be? Even if you held the pencil in between these two fingers here, as I've seen some people, you still have your thumb to guide it. Now you may come to a point where you're able to to write or print, but it would be sloppy because the thumb is necessary for those things. It's interesting, right? And so you don't expect the thumb to do what the toes do, and so on and so forth. So God has engraced His people with gifts. And beloved, you have a gift. The sad thing of the life of the church is that always, it's what I've always seen, is about 20% of the body of Christ does 80% of the work. Where's the rest? Where are the rest of the gifts? Now I'm talking about physical talents. Spiritual gifts is what God gives, and He gives them for the purpose of honoring and glorifying Him and edifying and unifying the body with the diversity of gifts given in the life of the church. Now, the the Scripture reveals at least five groupings of gifts. And they are word or work. It is a speaking gift or a serving gift of some kind. Uh, 1 Corinthians has two groups of about nine gifts. 
Uh, we find also in Romans 12, Ephesians chapter 4 it lists some of them, and 1 Peter 4 as well. Uh, gives a, uh, Peter just boils it down to uh, whether you have the ability to speak or you have the ability to serve just the two. But every believer, everyone who has been engrafted into the body of Christ, has a spiritual gift. Now let me ask you, beloved, do you know where you fit in in the body? Do you know what your gift is? Do you have the gift of hospitality? Do you have the gift of administration? Do you have the gift of service? Do you have the gift to speak? Now, within that realm of speaking gifts, it doesn't mean that everybody's called to be the pastor. It may be that you are enabled to teach a class. Maybe to teach a Sunday school class. Maybe to teach a Bible study. Maybe to lead a ladies Bible study. Maybe to lead a men's Bible study. Maybe to have some kind of a study when, at your job where you have a lunch break and you're able to walk through the Scripture and explain things. It may not be specifically that you stand up in the pulpit on the Lord's Day. But you have the ability to communicate the truth of God. Do you have the ability to serve? To, to be a deacon, to serve? Uh, a diaconess. You know, the, it's not an office within the church. But uh, Phoebe was called a deacon within the church. Again, not an office in the church, but a servant, a woman who is a servant in the church. We are called to be that, and we have been gifted to do that. And let me say this, the Heidelberg Catechism, 110. God regards theft, stealing from Him with a misuse and waste of our gifts. <laughs> How could you not be misusing and wasting them if you don't know what they are? How could you not but be misusing and wasting them if you know what they are and you don't exercise them in the life of the church? We are in a culture that thinks way, way, way more highly of the material, physical things than spiritual. And we get caught up in that. I have seen people that will trek through snow uh, to get to a volleyball game or a basketball game, but they won't come to worship on the Lord's Day if there's an inch of snow outside. Something's wrong with that. I once had a, an older lady in a congregation, and as I had done a pastoral visit, I was talking to her about reading the Bible, and she had simply came out and said, I don't read the Bible. But in that particular week, we had had a snowstorm, and there were probably 15 inches of snow there in South Dakota. And as I drove by her house, I saw her footprints running out to the mailbox to get her newspaper. Something's wrong with us. Something is seriously, systemically wrong in the life of the church. I don't know the fix except for the Word of God. I don't, I don't know any other fix. And that's the frustration, isn't it? You keep on preaching and teaching and strive to do so without being frustrated with the people that you preach and teach to because you love them, but you don't see them doing what we're called to do. We're all called to do. We don't function in the life of the church. We don't edify. We don't build up. We're indifferent about those that are sick. We don't serve those that have needs. Why? We're so consumed about ourselves. 
We're so narcissistic about pleasing ourselves. And it's all about me. And yet we're called as servants of Christ. God is going to hold us responsible for how we stewarded the gifts that He has given to us in the life of the church. Beloved, you, you, you must get busy. You must get busy with what God has called you to in the life of the church. He has engraced you for that. He has blessed you abundantly with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And He calls us now, be actively involved in one another's lives. Build up one another. Edify one another. Encourage one another. It's a hazard to be an encourager. And the hazard is, you will be discouraged being an encourager. Isn't it a strange thing? It's like an anomaly. You're encouraging others, and because there is not reciprocating going on, you become discouraged in encouraging. It's a bizarre thing. Crazy business. But that's, that's the world in which we live. That's the church world. And I know, and, and look, I think that the church recognizes this, and I think because it recognizes it, it is looking for a fix. And they look everywhere but where the fix is found. And that is God's Word. It's the Spirit applying the Word. You see, when your mind changes about these things, your actions will change. When the Holy Spirit stirs you up and revives you again, well, you'll be on fire for the Lord. Until then... You're neither hot nor cold, as Jesus said to the church of Laodicea. I could wish that you were either hot or cold. But there's a lot of lukewarmness that goes on in the life of the church. It ought not to be that way. Just simply reflect upon how God has saved you from all of your sin and misery. Just think about the fact that we have earned and deserved eternal damnation. Every one of us. I have deserved it. I earned it. I deserve to be damned for all eternity. I deserve God's wrath to come upon me. I deserve eternal punishment. Punishment that's beyond the ability to comprehend forever and ever and ever. And God has rescued me. Why? Not because of me. Not because of what I have done. Despite of what I have done. Because it's His good pleasure and purpose to do so. Because it brings glory to His name to do so. How can I not then sing His praise? How can I not desire to serve Him? Go back and remember and reflect upon. That's what Paul does. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Therefore, by the mercies of God, reflecting upon the mercies, that I didn't get what I deserve. God didn't give me what I deserve. He gave me what I didn't deserve. What was that? He gave me Christ. He gave me heaven. He gave me forgiveness. He gave me redemption. He gave me adoption. And He keeps on giving to the church. Reflect on those things. Because it's God who works in us. He works in us to will and to work of His good pleasure. Paul says, who is above all and through all and in you all in verse 6. And so the measure of Christ's gift is this. 
that Christ has gifted in his body exactly what's necessary. He's given to one and he's given to another and they are not the same gifts. There is a multiplicity of gifts, probably about 20 different gifts at least that I read of in the scriptures. And they function together. It's like alphabetical soup, right? That alphabet soup, when you throw it all together, well, then it makes sense. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense with just one A floating there. What's that? Yeah, there was a cartoon movie, you know, and it's called The Ants. And uh, one ant kidnapped another, and the, the one that got kidnapped says, nobody's ever heard of, of one or two ants. A billion ants, but not one or two. You see, it's the body of Christ that is brought together. And God has reason and purpose for that. And so in verse 8, he says, therefore, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, Paul is drawing here from the Old Testament. This is Psalm 68. And what he's referring to is that when the kings would go out to battle and they would fight, there would be two things. People and property would be taken captive. And with the people and property that are taken captive, the king would then bring them back to the city and there would be an ascension, as it were, up to the throne and he would share in the booty, as it was called. He would share in the gifts. He would share in the property that was taken by conquest. Now, Paul refers this to Jesus Christ. How is it that when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive? He is the warring king that as he ascends up to the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7 speaks of that, he ascended up to the Ancient of Days in his coronation to be seated, his session ruling over all things, and now he shares with the inheritance with the people of God. He shares with the gifts that has been given, but we are that which has been taken captive by Christ. This morning I was speaking a little bit about uh, an, an ancient heresy. It was called the ransom theory, and it was started uh, by Tertullian in the Middle Ages. And Tertullian taught that uh, there was a ransom paid to Satan for the redemption of the people of God. So Satan, at the fall of Adam, had taken humanity captive. And it was Christ who came and fulfilled and then paid a ransom to Satan to then bring back the people of God. That is heresy, beloved. There's no such thing spoken in Scripture of that. The debt was owed to God. God's justice must be that which is satisfied. Christ satisfies the justice of God by his perfect life and his perfect death. Now, with regards to Satan, you know, we, as I had mentioned in the Sunday school, you know, uh, the, the comment you hear, you know, we don't uh, negotiate with uh, terrorists. When Christ comes, he doesn't negotiate with Satan. You understand this? Satan is referred to in Matthew 12 as the strong man. He is the strong man in that he is stronger than humanity. And he has taken humanity captive. Paul refers to that in 2 Timothy 2, that Satan has taken the unbeliever captive to do his will. He is a slave of Satan. We are set free from Satan's dominion and sin's dominion within our heart by Jesus Christ. How does he set us free? 
He is the strong, the one who is stronger than the strong man. And that is what's given there in Matthew 12. How is it that you can ravage somebody else's, the strong man's goods, unless one stronger than him comes? That's Christ. Now the imagery. Christ comes, kicks down the door, ties up Satan, and takes his people. There's no asking up to it. There's no permission that's granted. There's no asking of it at all. You have my property. Down comes the door. Tied up Satan. Now he's chained. Christ takes his people and he leads them. And where is he? He sits at the right hand of God. And we are in him. We are seated in him. That's what Paul spoke of in Ephesians 2. He has taken captivity captive. We were captive to Satan. Christ has taken us captive. We belong to him. He's given us gifts. And that's the imagery that's given. The Ark of the Covenant came back. And there was great rejoicing. There was great singing. And there was a sharing in all the property that was given by the king. So Paul goes on. And he says now this. That he ascended. Alright. Ascension. We know what ascension is. Ascension is going up. In Acts chapter 1. The apostles watched the Lord ascend into the heavens. Again, Daniel 7, he ascended to the Ancient of Days. He came up to the Ancient of Days. This is, beloved, a declaration, along with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that all the work of Christ has been accomplished and received by the Father. Christ sits, that's his session, is rule and authority over all things, making all of his enemies the footstool of his feet and redeeming his people. That's the king that we worship. That's why I'm offended by those that say, you know, he stands at the door and he knocks. And if you open, then he'll come in. But if you don't open, he won't come in. That's not the sovereign king of scripture. He didn't ask your permission. If you were given to him by the father, he comes And He comes as King. And He comes to redeem. He comes to ransom. He comes to regenerate. He didn't ask your permission. He does it because you belong to Him. And I'm so thankful. There's always resistance that goes on with sinful man. But that resistance can never stand to the authority of Christ. It can never stand to the power of God. That's why it's called irresistible grace because ultimately the sinful man cannot stand in rebellion against God when salvation comes. So he ascended. That also means that he descended. He first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Uh, The descended. Don't misunderstand what this text is saying. Descended means that he came down. That refers to his incarnation. The ascended refers to his coronation. The descended refers to his incarnation. That he came to this earth. And Paul says, um, and he came, descended into the lower parts of the earth. That word is used in four, at least four different ways in scripture. It's used in Psalm 139 with regards uh, in the lower parts regarding the womb. It's referred to of Jonah in the lower parts of the earth in the belly of the fish. It's referred to of death. It's referred to the grave. 
It doesn't refer to Christ descending to hell somewhere. It means Him coming down to this earth in the incarnation and dying on behalf of His people and then rising again uh, to sit at the right hand of the Father. There's such a misunderstanding today. And I think it's owing to the Apostles' Creed. I don't have any dispute with the Apostles' Creed. You understand. The Apostles' Creed is not inspired. Apostles' Creed was not written by the apostles. It was the teaching of the apostles that were compiled. But there is a phrase in there uh, that is out of logical sequence. And because it is, it brings confusion to many people. And I think that it was added, I, I think it's like in the 12th century, it was added to the apostles' creed, and that phrase is, he descended into hell. Read the apostles' creed, and you will see the logical progression. It's out of order. And it causes people to think that he descended into literal hell. And yet that's contrary then to the confession that we hold that his hell was on the cross and before. Christ's hell was on the cross. Christ suffered the, the wrath of God. The, the, that wrath that we can't even describe. Indescribable wrath of God. He suffered on the cross and before. Especially at the end of his life, the confession says, on the cross, God's wrath was unleashed against him. He didn't go to the literal place of hell. So it is. The lower parts, to this earth, to the grave, ascended into heaven. And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Who's the king? Jesus. Who reigns? Jesus. Who is glorified in all things? Jesus. Who is exalted? Jesus. In whom is the Father well pleased? Jesus. He is the conquering King who fills all in all, beloved. He is the Word of God, the Logos of God. He is the redemption of God. He is the resurrection and the life. He is, as we ascend in Him, He is the glory of God. He is the expect image of God. The exact representation of God. Christ is the glory of God. This is the King that we worship. This is the one who has ransomed us. He's come to this earth for that particular service. To come to live in our place. To fulfill the demands of the law in our place. All the demands. I've broken them all. Christ fulfilled them all. Why am I accepted before the Father? Because Christ fulfilled all the commands for me. What else did He do? He went to the cross. What did He do on the cross? He suffered the inexpressible anguish, pains, and terrors of the wrath of God in my place because of my sin. He was condemned that I never would be condemned. In my place condemned He stood that I might then be the righteous of God in Him. We receive the benediction at the end of the service. That is God pronouncing a blessing upon His people. It's the good word of blessing. Why is that? Why do we receive that? Because Christ received the malediction. The curse word. He received the consequences of the breaking of the covenant. Which we all have broken. He took on that punishment. He absorbed that punishment. He took responsibility for the punishment of His people. And in exchange, 
He gave us all the obedience which He has fulfilled in our place. And now we are then seen and regarded by the Father as covenant keepers in Jesus Christ. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord that it should be recompensed to Him Or who has first given to him that God should then give to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. Why are we here, beloved? To God be the glory. To sing his praise. He's rescued us. He's redeemed us. And he's done so by the hand of the conquering king, Jesus Christ. Give him praise. We're here to give him praise throughout all eternity. What a king. Amen. Shall we pray?